Good morning. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians. It's a letter in which Paul tackles some tough issues. As we've described what Corinth is like, it was characterized by the love of status and honor. In the time, Corinth attracted status-conscious yuppies. And Paul could see this status-consciousness inch and creep its way into the church And he saw that it was responsible for the divisions that were created. The problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth. As we've been saying, there was too much of Corinth in the church. The Corinthians associated themselves with high-profile figures. They saw their affiliation with these high-profile figures as a badge of honor, as a measure of their status. And as Paul talks about the divisions and the things that caused it, he lays the blame For this, what he will call worldly and fleshly development. He lays the blame for it, not at the feet of sheep, but at the feet of shepherds. Read with, read along as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people but as to people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 
Let no one deceive himself. If any if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Paul addresses them. What he says is, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as to people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The Corinthians counted themselves among the mature and spiritual. They would have been stunned to find themselves described by Paul as infants. And although they react to this and would have reacted to this, there is an irony here. When Jesus was here in Matthew 11, he thanked God for hiding the things that he would reveal about the Father. What he indicated is no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And what Jesus went on to say is that he is the one who reveals the things about the Father, the things that are associated with life. And when he talked about those who end up understanding these things, Jesus indicated that God hides these things from the wise and understanding and reveals them to infants And so as Paul talks to them as infants, they are in a position being called infants to understand what it is he needs them to understand, but they react against that because they want to be considered the mature. They have affiliated themselves with Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Jesus, and because they have, they would react to being described as infants, although there is a... A positive aspect of that, it's to infants, to the simple, that Jesus indicated the deep things of God are revealed. Um, It seems that by fancying themselves as wise and mature, the Corinthians cut themselves off from the transforming power of the cross. It's not that Paul doesn't give them wisdom and solid food. He is giving them that, but they don't recognize what he gives them to be wisdom and to be solid food. The fact is, both the immature and the mature are receiving the same revelation, and it would seem the mature don't spit it up. Paul introduces, as he goes through here, a frequently found contrast in the Bible. Flesh versus spirit. You find it a lot. Flesh. Versus spirit. He says you are still of the flesh. Flesh can mean different things. It can mean physical body. uh, As opposed to soul. But when Paul describes it here, you are of the flesh, he's not just saying you are, you have a body. The flesh here is a spiritual operating system. One that relies upon worldly values. And it's in that sense that Paul talks about flesh. It's a spiritual operating system. And the 
operating system that opposes it or conflicts with it is called spirit. There is spirit and then there is flesh. To be of the flesh is to be controlled by natural human impulses. So fleshly then refers to an individual's values, attitudes, and judgments. And when Paul talks about, well, how can I tell if I am operating out of a fleshly operating system or a spiritual operating system, what Paul would say is that the fleshly operating system evidences itself in self-centeredness, self-indulgence, and arrogant self-sufficiency. Flesh and spirit are operating systems here. So I guess the question is, how can we distinguish between the two? I'm going to give you two words that are going to hopefully summarize what flesh is characterized by and what spirit is characterized by. Flesh is fissional. Fissional. When I talk about fission, I'm talking about that which splits. Fission is the dividing of something, and flesh is fissional. When you see a fleshly operating system, what you see are things splitting, things are dividing. What we'll do, we'll contrast that with spirit. Spirit is not fissional. Spirit is fusional. It unites things. It combines things. That's the difference between flesh and spirit. Flesh is fissional, and spirit is fusional. Flesh is fissional. Paul lists jealousy and strife as works of the flesh. And what's happening in Corinth, these kinds of attitudes are dividing people. So there's one group that allies themselves with Paul and another with Cephas and another with Apollos and another with Christ. And Paul sees this as evidence of flesh, splitting, fission. Uh, a divided spirit, spiritual community at this point, and we've described this. It's not like we're going to be able to turn the clock back. Paul is concerned, as we've said, that the church was dividing in threes. And we're 18, like 14,000 times worse off. There are ostensibly 41,000 Christian denominations. We can't turn the clock back. But what we can do is we can understand what it is that characterizes spirit and what characterizes flesh. In Paul's sense, a divided spiritual community is untenable. It is an indication that the cross has been emptied of power. Paul sees it that seriously. In Paul's mind, factionalism, division, is fleshly. Betrays human failing. It would appear, again, in our time, that Paul's making much ado about nothing. Uh, there's all kinds of divisions, and we're not going to be able to turn the clock back. But Paul is really serious. In Titus, here's what he says. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What Paul describes is individuals who are a divisive person, and in the context, the word for divisive is the word from which we get the word heretic 
what Paul's talking about in the context? Watch out for heretics. Watch out for heretics. Now, a heretic, as we would see, is somebody who has maybe different beliefs. In the context, what a heretic is, it is a divisive person. It's a person who creates divisions. They take a Christian truth, perhaps, magnify it out of all proportion in order to divide congregations. Baptism is important, and yeah. So what a heretic might, might do is to say, I'll tell you what, if you haven't been baptized in this specific way, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. You know, if you've been sprinkled, <coughs> you know, that's, and so, you know, to make a big thing about how is what a heretic might do. And so we, you know, you know it's just, he's just being himself. Well, Paul talks about it at the time that if you, if there's a person who is making a habit of that, bringing up these truths and seeming to cause division, what Paul indicates, shun him. Have nothing to do with that person. Such a person is, Paul described, warped and sinful, self-condemned. And what Paul sees is that splitting is, well, fleshly. Fusing is spirit. Spirit is fusional. Uh, Paul writes, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, neither he he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. But Paul describes him in Apollos, and the reason why he talks about he and Apollos, both of them had worked in Corinth. They were involved. The Corinthians knew about both of them. They worked side by side. They worked side by side. And Paul uses this idea of a farm and a farmhand to indicate that you can work side by side, and get along and be cooperative. You don't have to divide into groups. You don't divide into factions or schisms. Um, Paul presents himself and Apollos as models of a non-competitive teamwork, and he'd like the church to copy. Remember the way Apollos and I did it? We didn't divide into two groups when they were there. Uh, Sowing and watering are interdependent and complementary. They contribute to the same goal of Producing a crop, the labor of one would be useless without the other. If you sow a seed but don't water, you're not going to get a crop. If you water but you haven't sown a seed, you're not going to get a crop either. And so what Paul describes, I planted the seed, Paul waters, both are important, and therefore those who do such things, they shouldn't divide or split. The value of the labor of one worker can't be hailed as more important than that of another. What is important is that God makes use of the laborer. Planters only scatter the seeds supplied to them by God. They put the seed supplied by God into the earth supplied by God. Waterers only keep the soil most moist for growth by using rainwater supplied by God. God is giving growth through the planting and watering. The Spirit of God unites and the spirit of the world divides. 
what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Before we read that, Randy, I have a favorite ask. And back right by John, there is a clamp and a piece of wood. Would you grab that for me? Let's read what it says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Thank you. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul talks about weakness. I have a piece of wood here. And this piece of wood we would call weak because it's split. You see that split? Something that's split, if this is a weak piece of wood, it's not going to serve very well in accomplishing that for which we would want to use it. Uh, in the context, Paul likens weakness to prayer. And what he indicates is that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Why? Because we're split. We're weak. We have different sides to us. We have a body that has one kind of desire. We have a spirit, a soul, that wants, us a, diff- wants a different kind of desire. The reason we don't know what we ought to pray for is the parts of us want different things. And um, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Tell the word for helps. The word for help, it describes what this clamp does. A clamp is useful to hold something together that is splitting. This is what the Spirit does. It, the word used to describe help is the thing, it's what happens when this clamp puts pressure to keep something that would split in contact with each other. That's the image for the Spirit helps us. The Spirit functions like this clamp does. The fact is, the flesh tends to foster conflict between body and soul. You know what the Spirit understands? That you have body needs and that you have soul needs. The Spirit is not going to foster internal conflict. The Spirit is sensitive to both needs. And when the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God, He doesn't emphasize the body at the expense of soul or the soul at the expense of body. The Spirit unites the two. And that is, I think, one of the primary differences between flesh and spirit. Flesh is fissional. It splits. Spirit is fusional. It clamps. It unites both individuals, so we don't split against ourselves, don't go to war with ourselves, or bodies. 
We are different people. We have different gifts. We see things differently. The Spirit's influence will be registered by an ability to exist together, even though there are things that separate us. And do you see now why Paul is concerned about Corinth? They're splitting. And that's why Paul sees this isn't spirit, this is flesh. Um, The spirit promotes unity and fusion. The flesh promotes splitting and fission. Paul goes on to say, he who searches knows what is the mind of the spirit. A verse that we've talked about before, really a, a significant verse. The spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who are the saints? You are. Saints are not people who have been canonized, people who have seen miracles. Saints, biblically, are holy ones, people who belong to Christ. That's what a saint is. How many saints do we have here? Christians, believe in Jesus? Believe that Jesus died? Give your life to him? Reconciled? Letting the message of reconciling remain? You're saints. What it describes here is that The Spirit intercedes for us, for you, according to the will of God. Now, here's a tricky question. The Spirit is interceding for you according to the will of God. Here's a question. Are you experiencing God's will? You say, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Is the Spirit interceding for you? And if so, you know what we tend to believe? That it isn't that we want. Well, we might say we want God's will and don't know it. We want God's will and don't know it. We could say that. How many of us want God's will? Do you know what the problem seems to be? It's not that we want God's will and don't know it. We know God's will and don't want it. Would you agree? The Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. God's will, the Spirit's will, is not that we have our best life now. In this life we suffer in order that in the life to come, we might have eternal life. It's not that we want God's will and don't know it. It's that we know it and don't want it. Uh, What it does say, though, is we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. You know, we have a sense that when things are not as we want them, we want them to be, we get the sense, and we say it to ourselves, don't just sit there, do something. I mean, look at, look at your life. Don't just sit there, do something. Don't, don't just sit there, do something. You've got to get rid of this. You've got to get rid of that. And you know what? I, I think what God would say, we were talking about it the other day. Don't just do something, sit there. You know what? God does cause all things to work together for good. 
Interestingly, in Greek, all means all. <laughs> Difficulties? Relational difficulties, you don't have what you want. You don't do what you want. You don't feel what you want. I mean, God's not going to use that kind of stuff, is he? Put you in places where you don't have what you want to have, do what you want to do, and feel what you want to feel. You should have the right to change those. We should have the right to change those things, shouldn't we? I mean, and split off from individuals who make us feel uncomfortable? We should do that, shouldn't we? It's justified. All depends what spiritual operating system we're functioning from. Flesh is going to advocate split. And the spirit is going to do something different. What went wrong in Corinth? How does this happen? How did the spirit get unplugged and the flesh get plugged in? Look what he says in, as we go on, according to the grace of God given to me, Paul writes, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, or the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul is the skilled master builder. He's the one who came to Corinth and laid a foundation. There are others, now that he has gone on to Ephesus and elsewhere, there are others building on the foundation. So far, so good. That's to be expected. He's not going to do everything. He puts people there. Other people are adding to the foundation that he placed. He sowed the seeds. What is the message? The word of the cross. He tried to make that clear. And we've talked about what the word of the cross is. Do you remember that word? What is the word of the cross? Reconciliation. If you want to put the gospel in one word, that's the word. Reconciliation. The taking away of a relationship of enmity and replacing it with one of goodwill. What happened at the cross? God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We implore people on God's behalf, be reconciled. That God reconciled to you. What do you need to do? Receive it and believe it. That's what the cross is about. That's the word associated with the cross. God knows you. He accepts. Now, we've talked, is everybody reconciled? You know, the deal with reconciliation is you need to accept it and believe it. If I reconcile with you, but you don't know it. That's not going to help you, is it? Here's what happened at the cross. God wants you to know that the cross is an indication that he is not angry at you. He is not your enemy. We make room for that. And that is the foundation that Paul laid. And other people came in, 
and they started to build on it. The problem was not all builders are equally skilled. In fact, you know what they tried to do? They tried to be a little bit too clever. Well, reconciliation is nice, but I tell you what, if we spice it up with this, it'll be even more impactful. We'll get people to be more committed, and that's what they did. They added human wisdom to the cross, thinking, well, that's going to help, right? Right? You know what ended up happening? It might have helped for a little bit, but then they started to divide. I like this a little bit better than that, too. I like that better than this, four, six, eight, 41,000. A split every 18 months since the beginning of the church. The problem is not that all builders are equally skilled. Again, I'm not saying go back to one church. We can't. But here's what he says. Paul writes, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones... Wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest as the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. It talks about a day coming. And the image it gives is that God's presence is going to express itself in some type of fire. And what it's going to do, not literally burn things up, but expose what is valuable and what isn't? What kind of work was done that is real and work that is not deep and real? Here's the question. How much of present-day church, and I don't know, I, how much of present-day church work is going to go up in smoke? Oh, I'm not. So Paul talks about... Um, and the deal is, not people. some people were just being ignorant, and they just didn't know. Uh, they substituted human wisdom for divine. They picked up the wrong tool, used the wrong material. They're ignorant and not malevolent. And he understands that that can happen. They just didn't know well enough. They just didn't know Paul's message enough. And he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So somebody just didn't know well enough. They, they didn't know enough to trust the message. They're not going to go up in smoke. They'll be saved. Their work won't. Um, others, Paul says, there's others that aren't just careless. Not just careless. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you're at that temple. The passage is used to tell people, don't smoke. You are the temple of God. Come on. Put away that second portion. <laughs> Put away the cigarettes. The problem is that's not what it's describing. It's not describing our physical selves. So to use that to blow somebody up for smoking, Gary, Tell them I'm looking at them. I'm looking around the corner at them. It's not what the text is saying. Not what it's saying. Not describing a person harming his or her own body. It's describing the church as the temple of God. And Paul issues a grave warning to those who damage the temple. Split it. How do you split it? Making 
mountains out of molehills, majoring on minors rather than majoring on majors. The passage is used also on Christians in general. It's used to indicate that at some point we're going to step before God and you know, you know, the highlight reel, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you did that. Remember when you were all alone and did that? We have this sense that a passage like this indicates there's going to be a highlight reel and it's going to play up there and you're going to have to sit there and go, oh, please, oh, here we go, here we go. Um, it's not describing a judgment to Christians in general. It's not. That's not what this text is about. It's not about the sheep. It's about the shepherds. It's about the workers, those who are building on the foundation, some workers moving into the flock in order to increase their status. They really don't care about being faithful to the message. They just like the influence. And Paul says to those in positions of spiritual authority, be very careful because these sheep are precious to me. God gives individuals information, calls them stewards, to pass on to servants. When the servants get the message, it helps them. When the servants don't get it, doesn't help them. And God then, I'm not sure exactly how all this works. One thing I do know, and Paul is saying, that the person who was supposed to give what the master gave and didn't give it, watch out. Again, I, I don't think this passage is about um, Christians in general, or Christian workers in particular. I don't understand how this is going to work, but here's what James says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's a deal. I'm not sure what it'll look like or how it will be. Um, the builders are the root of flesh or spirit. Um, so this judgment that's described here, it's aimed at shepherds, not sheep. It's aimed at stewards, not servants. Um, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you, Paul says, thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's God's wisdom. If you wanted to be wise, what would you have to do? Paul talks about the power of God. If you wanted to access the power of God, what do you make room for? Here's what Paul says. He said it earlier in chapter 1. In fact, I'm going to read this. Devin, come on up. We're going to have a closing song. So it says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is wisdom. And the word of the cross is power. Make room for this word. What is this word? What is the word of the cross? What is the message of the cross? It is the message of 
reconciliation. I'm going to pray for us. Um, pray for the meal. Uh, to point out, let's continue to keep Denise and her family in our prayers. Our father passed away and his funeral was yesterday. Um, let me pray for the meal and then we'll please stay with us and we're just going to go reconvene the back, have some soup and pie and hope you're able to join us. Uh, father, thank you for um, your message, the message of reconciliation. You would tell us that you have changed the relationship. You're not our enemy. You're not angry. And you would have us regard that and make room for it. And as we do so, it changes our heart. We end up substituting the fear of judgment for the sureness of being loved. And that really does slowly, progressively um, help us not to be so at war with ourselves, not to be so much at war with others. It's not fast. But it's powerful. It's your wisdom. Um, thanks for the, the food that we'll experience now. So it's for um, the opportunity we will have to be able to enjoy it with others. Bless the time. In Jesus' name. Amen.